Welcome to Highlawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We're so glad you've decided to join us and pray that you'll be blessed by the truth of God's Word today. And now we invite you to grab your Bible, if you're able, turn to Revelation all the way in the back, right before the maps, and join us as we walk through Revelation. Well, we are in session 32. We're talking about um, the millennial kingdom. So, <laughs> nothing complicated or potentially church dividing. And I say that in jest because this, this one chapter of God's Word has caused so much dissension that we certainly do want to uh, approach it with a, in a season of prayer. So let's bow our hearts before we go in. Uh, precious Father, as we move now into your word, Lord, we ask for ears that would hear the voice of your spirit talk to us, hearts that are open to your word, and, and minds that are clear of any preconceptions or misconceptions that, that what we receive tonight as we delve into your word, one, we, we come to claim the blessing that accompanies this book that you've prepared for both the reader and the hearer. But also, Lord, we, uh, we ask that you would grant us your understanding, your interpretation, that as we delve into these pages, these verses, Lord, that uh, you would guide every, every word, that what our, our thoughts, as our thoughts dwell on them, as we meditate on your scriptures this evening, Lord, that we would receive your truth and your truth alone. Lord, that it might shape us, that it might sculpt us, and give us clarity of thought as we approach the hope that we have through your Son. So join with us now and open our minds, our hearts, and our hands to your service as we dedicate this time and ourselves into your hands. Lord, it's in the matchless name of Christ we pray. Amen. So we are getting into chapter 20, talking about the Millennial Kingdom. Um, taking a look at what we're going to cover for the next couple of sessions, we will probably use two more sessions. One to cover um, the broad sense of eschatology. That's a fancy way of saying the hope that we have or the last things. And one of the things that I really want to talk with you about is what the Bible teaches about the, the destiny of the soul after this life. And I don't want to, uh, I don't, I want to give that the time that it deserves. Because I think that we have a lot of misconceptions on that very thing. What is the hope that we have once we close our eyes on this side of eternity? So we'll talk about that as well as eternity itself next week. And then the final instructions that John gives us uh, the week after that. But um, So that's the plan anyway. No, uh, we will not meet the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Uh, that will give you, uh, more than likely, my family will be traveling back to Kentucky. And we'll see, I'll put it that way. We, we will not be meeting, but... My family plans I'll keep within our family as we try to ponder those out. Um, but anyway, no, uh, we will not be meeting the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. 
So bear that in mind. But um, concerning the millennium, now you've heard me talk about amillennial eschatology, postmillennial, and premillennial. What does all that mean? Well, on the surface level, those three terms have to do with when does Christ return in relationship or in reference to the establishment establishment of his earthly kingdom. Um, when, we, when he says a thousand years, does it mean exactly 1,000 years? Uh, is he going to come before the kingdom of righteousness is established? Or do we as the church have to establish it here on earth before he comes back? Those, if you've read this chapter and you take it at face value, then those may sound like odd questions, but they're questions that the church universally has been struggling with for thousands of years. And it's based on the way that you interpret Scripture. Now, for those of you that have been in Bible studies with me, you're no stranger to the word hermeneutics. How do we interpret the Word of God? What, what level of authority do we give to the Word of God? Now, if you are a more literalist, as I tend to be, then if you read this chapter, you end up on the premillennial end of things, that Christ, as stated in this chapter, Christ will return visibly, personally, and in His glory, bodily, before the, the establishment of a kingdom on earth. Um, if you have the view that it's a work of Christ through us, that's what post-millennial means. Basically that Christ uses the hands and feet of Christ, meaning the church, to establish a kingdom of righteousness upon the earth and then once for a lengthy period of time, once uh, His ethics come into play overall, then Christ returns. Or that to the far left of that spectrum, that there isn't a literal millennium, and that most of that passage is an allegorical examination of the nature of, of Christ's ethics and the ethics of the church, but that yes, Jesus will in fact return at some point in time, maybe not in the exact span of a thousand years, but he will return. So that's what all that means. Amelie interpretation, which is on the far left, the more allegorical thing, that this is more of a, a, um, a morality tale that we glean truth from. Um, the kingdom of God, the, the basics of it is that the kingdom of Christ does not last for a literal thousand year period of time. That it is symbolic of the church age in which we find ourselves right now that His kingdom of righteousness is actually our present, and that Christ will return in judgment immediately prior to uh, Revelation 21. Basically, we're in the millennium right now. And it may be a thousand years, it could be two thousand years, it could be a lot longer, but it will one day happen just later on down the road. And that the stuff, more often than not mentioned in Revelation, is allegory, is it symbolic in nature. This is Origen. This is St. Augustine. These are the people who were um, present when the church went from being an underground religion to being the state-sponsored religion of the Roman Empire. And uh, it starts with Origen, 
who was a, a Christian writer and a Christian philosopher and theologian of the early century. He was considered a heretic some of his life and that brought back into prominence later on before the time of Augustine or Augustine, however you want to pronounce it. But he, he, he strived in his academic interpretation. He wanted to gain truths in Scripture through symbol, through morality trail. He, he, he tried to infuse Greek thought, Greek philosophy into Holy Scripture. He was very light-handed with it. Augustine picks up later on and he goes full tilt with this. But it also makes things easier. Remember, Constantine's grandson, um, Constantine's line's interesting. Constantine made Christianity legal in the Roman Empire. That means that you can be Christian and not get fed to the lions. But later down the road, it not only became legal and tolerated, but it became the state-sponsored religion of the Roman Empire. So all of the priests that were once priests of Jupiter, priests of Mercury, priests of, um, of all the Roman pantheon, they suddenly found themselves in a different religion all at once because the people signing their checks basically said, by the way, you have to be Christian now. The other side of that interpretation is the fact that the people who were signing the checks of the priesthood were also the same people that Revelation basically preaches against, if you will. Because it's hard in, in Revelations chapter 18 through where we are now in, in 20, it's hard to preach about the Son of God coming back to the earth to rid it of all the evil rulers if the people paying your bills are the evil rulers potentially. So amillennial interpretation, that uh, kind of answered that problem. There are several variations that exist, most uh, referring to the kingdom of heaven as the kingdom, uh, meaning that this is all about spiritual warfare, not about Christ literally bodily and physically returning to the earth in a political fashion. This is where we get the phrase that Christ will be a king in our heart. I remember asking several people when I was growing up, how can Christ be a king? And, and that was coming from uh, Christmas time when we were talking about the promise that Gabriel was giving to Mary. He will sit on the throne of his father, David. And I, I was asking my Sunday school teachers, one of which was my grandmother, I hate to say. If Christ is the king, why isn't he the king? And the response that I would get more often than not was he's a king in our hearts. This is that form of interpretation. More often than not, when a church ascribes to it, these are your more liturgical churches, uh, your, your more established churches, state-run churches, churches such as the Roman Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, which is the church, the Reformed Church of Germany, uh, the Dutch Reformed Church, um, and your first-degree churches that are, are just barely a step away from that, such as the Episcopal Church, uh, the Church of Scotland, which is the Presbyterian Church, and the, um, the Methodist Church, which is a branch off of the Episcopal or the English, the, the Anglican Church, the Anglican Communion. Postmillennialism is, is another thing altogether. This is the idea that Christ comes after the kingdom, that a kingdom of righteousness will appear on earth before he bodily comes back. So they do believe in a, body, a bodily 
return to earth. That there will be a thousand year period where Christian influence becomes politically dominant across the globe. Uh, after the church has become triumphant over all the structural evils of the earth, meaning poverty, meaning oppression, meaning slavery, meaning human trafficking, meaning drug use, meaning all of these evils that we find systematically ingrained into our culture, once they have been uprooted, Christ will then physically and visibly return. And this mode of thinking is often associated with churches and denominations more targeted towards the social gospel or what we would call liberation theology. Very popular in the, southern, in the global south or in South America. Premillennialism, which is what you've heard me preach on more than not, believes that the text should actually be taken at face value. That Christ will return, as we've talked about through uh, many periods, through the defense of Israel when it cries out to him. And he will also come in judgment of the attacking nations against the remnant of the faithful. That Armageddon will actually be a military engagement and it will end the tribulation period. And the world political structures that are in effect at that time will be banished. Once the power structures of the earth are defeated, Christ then claims David's throne and sets that up actually as, a, as an imperial body that covers the entire world. Empire in the old sense that means a kingdom of kingdoms. What do we call Christ? The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Christ returns with the justified, meaning us, uh, and inaugurates a kingdom of divine rule over the earth. And this is often associated, more often than not, with Protestant evangelical circles. Now, again, this is a question of interpretation as to which side of the fence you fall on. And there are multiple divisions within each of those three basic views. One, is the Bible really the Word of God, or does it just contain the Word of God? And we have to kind of sift through it to figure it out. Two, is God, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, at work within the authors of the Bible? Or do the authors make it up as they go? Three, does God protect the message of His Word? Does God protect the message of His Word? If something is written in Scripture through the will and the work of God, is it maintained all the way throughout? Or does humanity corrupt it? What is our belief regarding that? Next, does the message designate symbolic language when it occurs from literal language? Meaning, like we've talked about before, uh, the book of Revelation has allegories in it. It has similes. It has metaphors. It has all these symbols in it. But in my interpretive opinion, John uses his pen to tell you where those symbols are versus what's actually happening to him. It was as it were like versus I saw, I heard, I felt, I spoke. Does the Bible designate symbol versus literal? Lastly, is the Bible, in, do we think of it as an actual authoritative word? 
Is it instructions for living? Not just instruction in the putting together your stereo sense, but instructive. Is it worth teaching? Is it worth learning? Is it worth the impact that it should have on our hearts? Or is it merely a long poetic morality tale? What do we think of Scripture? That's what influences who we are and what side of that spectrum we, went, we end up on. Now, to the premillennial uh, end of things. I have a very high view of Scripture. I've not made any qualms about that. Um, and I'll use this as an example into this study. And we've talked about this in the previous, uh, previous study. There are promises linked to Christ becoming a political figure. Uh, first, we start with the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7. There is a time coming of undisturbed peace in the land of promise in Israel. The last time I checked, Israel was not undisturbed. And it was not peaceful. And it hasn't had a period of undisturbed rest at any point in her history. The second is the promise made to David that his throne and the throne that would be inherited by his descendants would be a kingdom that would endure eternally, a kingdom without end. That also has not yet come to pass. There was the promise made from Gabriel's lips to the mother of Christ, identifying Jesus as the heir of David, entitling him to the throne of Israel, and promising, echoing that previous passage, that he will have a kingdom without end. In other passages, of course, the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh, the one from who the scepter actually belongs, comes in Genesis 49. That Israel will be a unified kingdom and a kingdom that is purified, a kingdom of the righteous in Ezekiel 37. That it will be a kingdom that will include the Gentiles in the book of Acts, Chapter 15, remember the kingdom disappears. The kingdom is wiped out by Rome after the book of Acts is written. That there will be a time of conquest, judgment, and purification unequaled in any other time of history according to the book of Jude. So with all that background out of the way, we are in Revelation chapter 20. When you get there in your copy of God's Word, say Amen. Revelation 20, starting with verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding a key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is who? The devil, Satan. Underline that in your copy of God's Word. Because here, John, through the vision given to him by the Holy Spirit, is telling you who the snake in the Garden of Eden was. And I know there's been some conjecture about that, but serpent, remember, in this culture is a snake with wings, uh, or a dragon, rather. My apologies. A dragon is effectively a snake with wings. Uh, worm, W-Y-R-M. The ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. Ancient serpent, more literally translated, is the serpent of old. The King James Version says the old serpent. Mistranslation. It is not the old, even, the, okay, he is old, I'll, I'll grant it. 
But the actual meaning is this is the snake from Genesis. Or at least this is the angel who was whispering in the ear of a being who shouldn't have been able to talk in the first place. He sees the dragon, excuse me, the ancient servant who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. Notice that the capturing figure is not Jesus himself, even though he's responsible for the ultimate defeat, but it is one of the angels, a fellow angel, if you will. Verse 3, he threw him into the abyss, the abuso, the bottomless pit, closed it and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. Okay, I want you to note that time. From a correlation standpoint, the political reign of Christ before the heavens and the earth are remade and the amount of time that the enemy is imprisoned is the same amount of time. 1,000 years. That period of time in this chapter is mentioned six times. If this were allegorical, there may have been another, there would have been another way for John to say it, but he goes, he pounds this into the chapter. This is a thousand years, this is a thousand years, this is a thousand years, this is a thousand years. He's not leaving any room for doubt here. Through repetition alone, He's giving you the amount of time that this will take place. After that, he must be released for a short time. Now we'll get into that in a second. And this is reminiscent, of course, of something that uh, is spoken to Jesus in that event of the... Uh, the deviled hams. That's a passage in Matthew where Jesus... You know, there's legion who's in who's a group, a collection of demons who's in this guy who asks Christ, have you come to torment us before our time? And of course, Jesus exercises the demons and the demons go where? Into the swine. Hence my pun, deviled hams. Let's, okay, I'll go on. Bad joke, I know. Anyway, have you tormented us before our time? They know when their time is supposed to be, which I find interesting. Abuso, meaning the bottomless pit, otherwise known as hell. Dragon, that serpent of old, we've already covered that. This is the red dragon identified earlier for you in the scripture. Again, this is the thousand year period without the influence of Satan. Now that's important because we often wonder, okay, why is he... Why is he released only for a certain amount of time and then brought back? Notice that it says that he must be released for a short while. But there is a thousand year period where humanity, still mortal, still untransformed, the old earth is still in existence, the old heaven is still in existence. Creation has not been yet remade. The great and mighty city of heaven the new Jerusalem has not yet descended in place of the old. So the old heaven and the old earth are still at play here. This is a thousand year period of testing where the, where the heart of mankind will be put on full display without Lucifer. Is the creation really flawed? Is the creation really corrupted to the point that it has to be 
completely redone, nature-wise. This is basically holding a mirror up to humanity. If you had everything working for you, no devil, the perfect, immediate representative of God on earth in the person of Christ ruling over you, if everything was as good as it could have been within the confines of this particular nature, would we still have sin? Unfortunately, the answer is a resounding yes. Yeah, there's still sin. There's still corruption. Uh, what we're talking about here, and I'll get to that in just a second, but part of the lead into that is we're studying the most documented period of history in the Bible. There are more prophecies written about this one time in history, about the, the, the tribulation, the millennial reign, and, and on to the new heaven and new earth, the, the redemption of all creation. There's more prophecy about this specific subject than any other period of biblical history. And this is reluctantly a part of it. Will mankind realize that we're in that period? Uh, that's the question, just to make sure that you heard it. The answer is yes. By this point in time, the Battle of Armageddon would have taken place. The person, the, the physical person of Jesus of Nazareth will once again be physically on the earth. He will have taken David's throne. And he will be reigning in Jerusalem as a political figure over us. Yeah. We're getting to that. We're getting to that. The scripture will do my, my uh, will answer your question for us. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So we're not talking about, when, when, we're talking, when we say every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, we're not talking about people just praying. We're talking about making obeisance to the King. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. This is the resurrection of the faithful. The bodily resurrection of the faithful. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in this first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him. They will rule with Him for a thousand years. Now remember the previous section, all of the political authority on the earth had basically been wiped out by Christ at the Battle of Armageddon. All the nations of the world were gathered around Jerusalem. And Christ came down on His white horse. And then we, we read the passage of Scripture where one of the prophets is asking Him, Why is your robe all stained with red? And the Christ basically says, Because He slew them. 
So the first resurrection. Uh, this is explained by John. More literally, this is the first rising, the first people, the first of the believers to rise. Uh, the word anasathis, which means literally to stand up again. The word for resurrection that we use for resurrection in the Greek means to again stand, more literally. So, and this is also a category, not a single event as, as we're finding out. There are four groups mentioning throughout Scripture uh, that are coming back to reign with Christ. There are the Old Testament saints. There is, of course, the church that we referenced way, way earlier. There's the modern tribulation saints. And there's also the living tribulation faithful that called out to him that we see referenced in Hosea 5.15. So before we get any further into it, let me talk about uh, what we can call the two deaths. The first death and the second death. The first death is easy. It's the separation of the soul from the body. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This is the result of sin entering the world in the first place. For if you take eat of the, of the fruit, you will surely die. The consequence of sin is death. However, death is not annihilation, meaning that something always remains. The soul is immortal. The soul does not pass away. Hopefully, you will spend your eternity with him. But that's where we get into the second death. If the first death is separation of the soul from the body, the second death is the separation of the soul from, from God, from the presence of God. And that is, that is a condition from which there is no recovery. That is the result of sin remaining attached, stained on the soul when it comes to judgment, which is actually what we're talking about in this passage. So at the first resurrection, from those that are gathered around the throne, authority is given to them. They are actually a throne, enthroned by Christ to be put under Him. They are re uh, resurrected and empowered as regents, or in the Old Testament term, as judges. They are appointed as priests of God, as we've already read. The unfaithful will experience another, a second resurrection, immediately before what we call the white throne judgment. That will take place after the millennial kingdom. Now, again, we're talking about a time which is dealt with extensively in the Old Testament. Just taking a look at the prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 11, we can tell that this is a time that is filled with prosperity and with justice, but that sin and death are still present with the world. Remember, the world has not yet been remade. Righteousness is not ingrained in humanity so much as it is enforced by the throne. There will be limited evil, but it will still exist, but it will be judged immediately. Unbelievers, there is no excuses left. None. Um, 
the person who is the, the center of our faith is here physically. He's alive. He's in front of us. He is our king. There is no doubt anymore. What we now hold to as faith, or what some hold to as historic fact, will be made sight. He will be here. He will be instructing. He will be teaching. He will be judging. He will be ruling. There is no excuses left. Yet, eventually, humanity will still rebel. Um, there is also a little interesting side note coming from Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. Apparently during this time, temple worship will recommence. Now chances are good. We've already mentioned that a third temple will be built uh, where the, the abomination of desolation will, will make um, desolate. Basically, they will, it will remove the sacredness from the side of what will be the third temple. And then a new temple will have to be constructed or have to be remade. That is mentioned in great and expansive detail in Ezekiel 40 through 48, where an angel takes him with a measuring rod and shows him all around this great and glorious new temple. The dimensions and the actual, uh, the rooms and their functions are laid out in, in exquisite detail in this passage. So it's not symbolic. This is, an, this is eight chapters of Ezekiel's book dedicated to something that is, is not symbolic. It's very much a description of what the prophet is actually experiencing as inch by inch, function by function, room by room, this new temple complex and its surrounding city are described. I won't, I won't put you through all eight chapters right now. We'll move on. But it's interesting to note that the nations will actually be required to worship in this new millennial temple. And it will be styled in the style of the Old Testament, meaning that sacrifices will be brought back into play. Now, this raises a whole lot of questions. Christ gave his life. Christ is resurrected. Now, does that mean that if a temple is built and there is a sacrificial altar... Does that mean that we have to sacrifice for sin anymore? This is extreme conjecture, I will admit. This is my take on it. I want to give you the room to come to your own conclusions. Given the sacrifice of Christ, I do not believe that if there are sacrifices made, and we're assured in this passage that, that there are, there will be sin sacrifices. Please remember that there is more than one type of sacrifice proclaimed in, the, in, in Torah. There are oblations of thanksgiving. There are sacrifices of fellowship. Basically, there are festivals. There are what we as good Baptists would declare barbecues. Literally, where, where a, a calf is slaughtered, where the meat is roasted, and where the people of God gather around together in fellowship. There are grain offerings that are offerings of thanksgiving. There are all these other kinds of offerings. There are drink offerings or, or liquid offerings that are poured out in celebration of God. So sacrifice does not necessarily mean an offering given for forgiveness of sin, even though that was part of it. I believe that the sacrifice for sin was already given. 
and that the one and perfect sacrifice for sin was laid down. But again, that's my take on the subject. Let's move on. The temple complex will be open on Sabbaths and new moons. And I have a feeling that some of our Seventh-day brethren and Seventh-day Baptists will probably point at us and giggle a little bit because the seventh day refers to Saturday, Sabbath day. Again, the reason for a two-day weekend. And here's something else that's pretty interesting. Christ will rule from the temple. When the temple is constructed, according to Jeremiah, Christ will, and, and Ezekiel, Christ will rule from it. In fact, this is interesting too, just as a side note, verse 16 of Jeremiah chapter 3. When you multiply an increase in the land in those days, this is the Lord's declaration. No one will ever say again, the ark of the Lord's covenant. Let me repeat that. No one will ever say again, the ark of the Lord's covenant. It will never come to mind. And no one will remember or miss it. I'm not, for those of you listening on the podcast that can't see the screen, I'm only now starting to interject my own words. The entire passage from the Christian Standard Bible is, when you multiply an increase in the land in those days, this is the Lord's declaration, no one will say again, the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, it will never come to mind and no one will remember or miss it. Another one will not be made. That's all Scripture. Here's verse 17. At that time, Jerusalem will be called the Lord's throne meaning he himself, God incarnate, will reign from it. And all the nations will be gathered to it. And the name of the capital, L-O-R-D, meaning Yahweh, Lord, in Jerusalem, they will cease to follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. So what I find interesting about that is the Ark of the Covenant is what? It's, it's a reliquary box that contains the broken law of Moses. Remember, that when the sacrifice for sin was made during the Day of Atonement once a year, the Ark of the Covenant is declared to be the footstool of God. And when the blood of the sacrifice is applied to the Ark of the Covenant, the image that's being set up is that God is staring from His throne in heaven to His broken law. And that once a year, every year, a priest renews this commitment by coming in and spilling innocent blood over the Ark of the Covenant so that when God looks down from high, the prophetic image is He no longer sees the broken law, He now sees the blood of the innocent. Do you see how that also links with Christ? So at this point in time, when Jesus reigns, the Ark of the Covenant will no longer have a ministry. They won't even have to remember it. But the mercy seat will still be there. That's why several times I've mentioned in Scripture, particularly in these passages, the mercy seat, when you imagine the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat sits on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It kind of functions like the lid of the thing. But the mercy seat is also literally the seat from which Christ will judge. The mercy seat is treated as a different object. The Ark of the Covenant, the broken law of God has gone away. 
the mercy of God remains in effect. Isn't that neat? All right. Back to Revelation chapter 20 uh, into verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the, from the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sea, the sand of the sea. Excuse me. They came up across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. All right, so, so imagine this before we continue. Christ has been reigning for a thousand years by this point in time. Satan is loosed. And in a very brief amount of time, what happens? Now remember, Christ was reigning in righteousness over the whole of the planet. But nearly the instant that the enemy is released, the only thing left to him, not in rebellion, is what we can kind of interpret to be the city of Jerusalem. So we the saints who have been resurrected, who have gone on, who have been made judges, who have been made rulers, who have been put in places of, of authority as members of the family of God, we're next to the throne. But the people who are still alive, so to speak, they still have the choice between right and wrong. And through the influence of the enemy, which one do they choose? They choose wrong. As numerous as the sand upon the seashore that came across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are. We heard about them and their expulsion in the last chapter. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Hell was never designed for human souls. The purpose of hell was to be the final resting place of the enemy and his angels. Unfortunately for us, when we read John chapter 3 at the bottom of the most famous verse of all of Scripture, Jesus reminds us that um, those who are condemned are con condemned because they have rejected the only begotten Son of God. And those that reject Him are what? They stand condemned already. So, that can, um, the second satanic rebellion, the enemy is released to test humanity, basically to hold a mirror to us to examine our own righteousness. And we fail that test. The nations are very easily deceived into rebellion against Christ. In an army under the enemy's leadership, Gog and Magog, that's potentially that's idiomatic language, that's a description not necessarily a region, but I'll get to that in just a second. They attack the remnant of the faithful and the saints. But God himself destroys them kind of in the same uh, way that he destroyed, well, that he took the sacrifice at, at uh, Mount Carmel, the column of fire. God destroys them. And Satan is, ca excuse me, is cast into hell, only this time he is cast there permanently. 
So Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog enter Scripture in multiple places. Uh, they come, Gog is, the, is, is a king. And he's an interesting figure in history because he lived around the time of Ezekiel. When we get to Christ's day, when we get to John's day, he's already been dead for a thousand years, which is why we believe that uh, this is more idiomatic. This, this is not actually Gog back from the dead, but it's, it's used to describe him and to describe the scene of what's going on. But as far as Magog is concerned, as far as this occupying force is concerned, which is what we're talking about, Ezekiel 28, or 38 rather, uh, looks more like the Battle of Armageddon, described in chapters 18 and 19, than it does here. Ezekiel 39, on the other hand, does kind of look like this event. So are there two invasions? Are they literally Magog? So again, Magog, the nation or the, the ethnicity. Magog was the grandson of Noah, and he's often referred to in Scripture as the people of the north. And there are a lot of pastors out there that try to identify what that nation is, what that group of people is. They call it China, they call it Russia, they call it Rome, they call it whatever they can to try to label somebody else. Josephus, who was a, the Roman historian um, 70 years after the, the resurrection of Christ, calls them the Scythians. That's a people who were native to the Caucasus Mountains who lived around the area of the Black Sea and in that region of just north of Asia Minor. Now, the Caucasus Mountains is interesting because a bunch of different people descend from there, including Caucasians. I'll come back to that in just a second. According to Historia Britannum, which was written in 828, the people of the North Magog, by the scholars and the monks of those days, were actually the Goths, the Germans, the people who were the ancestors of the Celts and the British. Which is a very odd thing for you to say about yourself. Hey, we're going to be part of the army that goes to war against God. They were taking this stuff very much at face value, trying to do their homework. Some refer to them, uh, Johannes Magnus, who lived in the 15th and early 16th century, uh, thought of them as the Scandinavians, the people that had migrated up to Finland, Sweden, and, uh, well, the Russias as well. Rabbi Shimeo uh, Grasfeld, who lived in the 19th century, thought that they were the Mongol invaders, Genghis Khan, and that, that group of people. So what I'm trying to say is before anybody labels Magog in this capacity, the only person, uh, John, knew who he was talking about. The people John was immediately writing to knew what he was talking about. For us to put a label on it, being where we are right now and not having the same information that they took at face value, is almost absurd. Again, because there are so many people you can demonize with this kind of thing from an uneducated point of view. But anyway, when we're talking about anything from the book of Genesis, from the tableau of the nations, when you see names like Ham, when you see Canaan, when you see Magog, that refers to an ethnicity 
that branched out across the world that was common knowledge in John's day that has been since lost to us for the most part. There, uh, again, we may side with Josephus because he was a contemporary. But even then, the Scythians aren't necessarily the Scythians anymore because they too migrated all over the place. All that to say, an army will come. It will have numerous people. It will corner Jerusalem and God will defeat it. So anyway, moving on. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. They tried to get away from God, and they couldn't, in other words. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were open, books plural. Another book was open, which is the book of life. What we're talking about here is the ledgers were open when it says the books. What they're talking about is an accounting term. Basically, the ledgers were laid open. Who has read in their ledger? Who's in the black? Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up its dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, each one judged according to the works. Now, incidentally, Hades right here, does not. that's not another way of saying hell. Hades is a Greek term referring to the kingdom of the dead, the place of holding for the souls. Basically, if there's anybody else that's left in that, that area between Abraham's bosom and the place of torment, they have now been put forth in front of the white throne to be judged. And each one was judged according to their works. Well, let me caveat to say the ones that were found righteous wouldn't be in there in the first place because they've already moved on. They've, they were taking place during the, the, the Bema seat judgment. Excuse me. Verse 14, death and Hades were then thrown into the lake of fire. Now what that should say to us is that death itself, the kingdom of death, the holding place of the souls without bodies, was chucked into non-existence. It was obliterated because there's no need for it anymore. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And that concludes chapter 20. So the great white throne judgment, again, not the Bema seat judgment, this is the second resurrection when the place of the dead gives up everyone that was residing in it that was not found to be part of the saints. The, work, the, books of the, the ledger of people's works and the book of life were, bo- were both open before the Bema Seat. Basically, or excuse me, before the great white throne. So basically, everybody who is trusting in Christ for salvation, is, their name is written where? The book of life. And we can include the Old Testament saints in there too. So as God is looking down the ledger of the book of life, looking for these people's names, if he doesn't see it, okay, let's open the ledger of works. Now, the standard for what constitutes godly righteousness is who? 
Jesus Christ himself, the person who was without sin. And be careful. You have two options. You can either be covered with Jesus' righteousness, his righteousness put on your account, in which case you'd be in the Lamb's book of life, or the ledger of your own life will be opened, and you can only stand on your own righteousness. And if we have to stand on our own righteousness, what happens? We stand condemned already. If the benchmark is Jesus, what that means is someone who stands before God in order to get out of the great white throne judgment, they have to give evidence in his own ledger that they have lived as righteous a life as the Son of God himself, the second Adam, the person in whose image we have been made. It's not possible. It is simply not possible. <sighs> there is none righteous, no not, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The kingdom of death is ultimately destroyed. And those who are in front of the great white throne stand condemned already. Any questions or comments up to that point before we dismiss? Do I think there'll be different degrees of punishment? Um, my interpretation is no. I, I know that uh, there's a lot of extra biblical sources out there that say that there are seven circles of hell, each one with varying degrees. Um, that's Dante literally writing a divine comedy. And granted, he does accept that from, from other things that were passed around. But um, in, in the biblical end of things, we, we have this really bad image. And, and it's... I don't think that it's necessarily our Sunday school coloring books. I think it's more along the lines of culture trying to influence the way that we think about God's Word. That uh, if, if you are this kind of sinner, you end up in this level of hell. The Bible doesn't say that. The way that the Bible describes hell is not... The, the devil's job isn't to torment you so much as he is to trip you up and then point at you while yelling at God... You're not the great creator because look at what your creation is. The devil is trying, the enemy is trying to discredit God using us, using his creation. If he can get us to mess up, then he can go before the throne and say, you're as flawed as they are. These things that you made, these hairless apes, are nothing more than animals. That's what he wants to do. He wants to rob God of his glory. Rob God of his majesty. He wants to assume the place of God. He wants to basically prove that he could be a better God than God is God. 
And he wants to use us as the pawn in that game. And if we let him, he'll succeed. The Bible only gives one punishment. And that's to be thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where there is anguish for all eternity. I hate to say it. Part of me wishes that there were those layers. But the devil is not your jailer. He's a prisoner with the rest of whoever is in there. He is not the king of hell. He is its slave. And there he will be as well. Any others? Now that I've depressed you all, next week we will talk about the other side of that equation. Next week we will talk about heaven. We will talk about the place of rest for the soul, which is referred to in the Bible as paradise or Abraham's bosom. And we will also talk about the unveiling of eternity itself. And I hope that we're all here. And I hope that you're excited about that because this is what we've been building up to this point. I know there's been all this gloom, doom, battle, and bloodshed. But John, in the very back of the book, the very last word he says is Maranatha. Even so, come. Basically, he's telling us that with all the bloodshed, with all the torment, with all of the with all of the evil that we were going to endure, wait till you see the end. Because from the, from the apostle's perspective, the end is worth all the means. Everything that we and the people after us and the people before us, everything that we would have had to have gone through will be worth it when we see the kingdom of God in its full beauty. So please, be here for session 33. I want you to read Luke 16, 19 through 31. That's the parable of Lazarus. As well as Revelations chapter 21, Revelation apostrophe S. Not that there's more than one revelation. Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And I want you to think about these discussion questions. First, what have you been taught about what happens to the soul after our physical death? Or what do you have in mind? A lot of us have this kind of um, built-in theology, if you will, this functional theology. When, when we die in almost the Bugs Bunny cartoonish type of fashion, what happens? Some of us imagine just in that way that we will go up in a toga with little flappy wings with a halo and we'll grab a harp. What, what is it that you actually think happens to a person once they meet physical death? Second question, what do you think the new earth will be like? I don't want us to, we'll, we'll talk about the new heaven as well, but what do you think about the new earth? What will the new earth be like? We, there's a lot of, of books from the prophets that talk about that, about a different reality that we're going to be involved in where even the physics of the world that we live in right now will be outdated. A new heaven and a new earth. What will it be like? Remember to journal your thoughts 
Discuss it with your friends. As iron sharpens iron, so do friends sharpen each other. Anything else before we dismiss? Anything from the folks online? Then let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the hope that is ours through Christ Jesus. We thank you for the price that you paid to make that hope possible. And we thank you for the safety that we have to be able, Lord, this generation is blessed to not only be able to study your word in peace and in safety, but that we are among one of the first generations to be able to possess a copy of it of our own. So help to infuse within us a desire to know the word of God better and through its pages to know you better. Set us to this purpose so that we might not just be scholars of your word, but true disciples who take its meaning and who make it a reality. For it is in the most holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person, to contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.